0: Thanks, Ken. Thanks, uh, this is a really cool facility. I do hope they turn up the house lights though, so I can see you. Because uh, is, is that as light? Is that as bright as they go? Oh, I can see you a little bit. Hey, it's, it's great to be with you. Uh, any anybody from Biola University? Yeah, that's good. I knew there's a little contingent up here. You know, the Californians keep flocking up here. Uh, I'm actually, uh, uh, I have deep roots in Oregon, more in the Portland, Lake Oswego, Oregon City area. I think my, my, yeah, my great-grandfather was the uh, sheriff of Clackamas County for 50 years, you know. So we we go, yeah, (laughs) that's bad, yeah, the the sheriff, Yeah. yeah, oh my. Well, I'm glad there's a few Biola folks here. It makes me feel at home. I've been at Biola about 11 years. When I first got there, it was funny, I remember some of my colleagues saying, hey, there's this new thing. It's like an electronic bulletin board system, you know? Uh, This is hot internet technology, you know? And uh, so you can actually uh, monitor it and see what the students are talking about, you know? So you can keep in touch with what's going on on campus. And so I I dial into this thing, and, and the students are actually having a contest on the best theory on anything. That's pretty broad, you know. And so I'm monitoring this thing, and people are offering up some really uh, thoughtful things and some rather goofy things. But, but here's the grand prize winner. This is my first introduction to the students at Biola. It's in the subject of thermodynamics, you know. So if you're not an engineer, this might go, all right. Uh, uh, when a cat is dropped, it always lands on its feet. And when toast is dropped, it always lands buttered side down. I propose, says this student, that we strap giant slabs of hot buttered toast to the back of a hundred tethered cats. The two opposing forces will cause the cats to hover, (laughs) spinning just inches above the ground. Using a giant buttered toast cat array, we can cut hours off of our travel time during spring break between L.A. and Palm Springs. Uh, good for him. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't have an engineering department at Biola, but we have a great creative writing program. Hey, speaking of education, I hear you have a dynamite uh, Sunday school program here, hey, and, and you know, kudos to those of you who uh, participate in that. I mean, it's, uh, I guess it's a little bit legendary in town. I mean, I bumped into a woman in a local grocery store who knew something about it. And in fact, she told me this, that, that there's some kid in your Sunday school program here. I don't know, it must be a neighbor of hers. And he gets invited by a neighbor to a local church. I guess it was more of a liberal variety, maybe a liberal United Methodist or Unitarian church or something. You probably don't have those in town, but... Uh, uh, if, if you do, they found it. And, and so this, this kid from your Sunday school class program gets invited to this liberal program. And he goes in and sits in Sunday school there with his little friend from down the street. And uh, the, the teacher is basically debunking the Bible for the students, you know. This is, this is just an ongoing process. And they're on the uh, topic of Jonah and the big fish. And so the teacher is debunking Jonah and the big fish. And uh, the student from your program is uh, listening to this in horror. And at the end, once uh, this guy's finished saying it's all a myth, and I'm sure there's some faith experience we can have from this, but, but don't believe that it really happened. The boy was a little upset. He said, I'm, I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened. And, uh, and, and the man said, well, give me some proof. Because I don't have any. It was a little bit beyond him. But, but he said, uh, uh, when, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. And the teacher, a little bit smug, says, Oh, yeah? What if Joan is in hell? And the student says, Then you ask him. You have a a good program here. I like it. That didn't really happen, of course. I'll try to tell the truth the rest of the time. I don't know about you, but when I first uh, became a Christian and I'm reading the New Testament, I'm going, wow, this is, if this really happened, this is stunning, you know? And I I was of the opinion that it really happened. And and immediately, I just kind of got on a trajectory that, that looked for truth and evidence that this really did happen. That there really was Jesus, that he walked on water, multiplied loaves and fishes, you know, gave sight to the blind, cast out demons and all that kind of supernatural stuff that just seems so far from my experience, you know. Uh, But I have good reason to believe that this is true. And we live in an age when people think we're pretty crazy for believing this kind of stuff. They need to think again because this stuff really did happen. I wish I, I kind of wish you were down at the apologetics seminar if you missed it. I mean, that's what we talked about uh, all weekend. But this stuff really happened, and you can actually know it to be true, not just through some inner experience, but through objective knowledge. You can actually investigate it and determine that it really happened. Even some of the... Uh, brightest uh, scholars in the world of a skeptical variety end up becoming convinced by the weight of the evidence. It's really stunning. We can know these things to be true. We didn't sign up for a blind faith project. Now, some of you might have stumbled in here going, you know, this is really cool. I I love Jesus. And you don't really have a clue as to whether he really existed or not, you know. And I think God will work with that. But you don't have to leave it there. You see, uh, it turns out that there's this amazing trail of evidence back through history testifying to the truth of these things. It turns out this thing is true. And it's, it's sometimes that I wake up every morning, I'm not kidding, almost every morning thinking, wow, it's, it really is true. It's like I have to pinch myself. You know, we are in possession of the great story of all that ever was, is, or will be. And, and people are actually dying to know that story. But they're having a very difficult time dialing in and understanding that this, what we're saying is different from what the Hare Krishnas are presenting or maybe what the the Latter-day Saints are presenting or the Buddhists, you know? And we have to be able to demonstrate to them that this is true And, and demonstrably so, not just true inside of us, right? We have excellent reason to believe that it's true. It's not just about blind belief or blind faith. And it strikes me that that, there's a tremendous biblical trajectory along these lines. I mean, you don't have to get far into the new into the Old Testament before you discover the the the, the Old Testament prophets were big on this. I think about Elijah. This this is one of the great moments of demonstration of the truth of you know who god really is elijah he was a brash fellow he he's on mount carmel and he squares off with the prophets of baal and he builds himself an altar and he has the prophets of baal build themselves an altar and they put some sort of you know meat up there and and uh, and he lets the prophets of baal go first now here's a great contest whose god is true you know and so the prophets of Baal over there, are working really hard. They're dancing. They're slicing themselves. Uh, Elijah, he's poking him with like a big stick, you know. He's like, hey, I think, he's, I think your God's in the bathroom. I'm not kidding. I think maybe he's asleep, you know, shout louder. It was great. I, did you guys like have a Mormon church in town? Maybe we could do some sort of, you know, that one. We've, we've just lost our nerve, you know. We, so these guys, the prophets of Baal, they get exhausted. They're just in a heap at the bottom of their altar. Oh, you know? And, and Eli- it's Elijah's turn. And so just to really poke the stick some more, he has guys bring buckets of water and dump it on the sacrifice, you know. And... Uh, I was teaching this story to a bunch of fifth graders one time, and I asked the fifth grader, so why do you think that Elijah had people dumping buckets of water on his sacrifice? <laughs> and one kid in the class goes, to make gravy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a keeper. <clears throat> so Elijah, he has people pour, the, the water's flowing down, it's filling the trench around it, and Elijah just basically goes, hey God, You know, fire comes down, and consumes the the sacrifice, it consumes the altar, it laps up the water, it takes up a few prophets of Baal. It was a marvelous demonstration. God is in the demonstration business. He really is. He wants us to know these things are true. Uh, The the Old Testament prophets weren't the only ones into this. Uh, Think about about the apostles in the New Testament. Uh, Take a look at, at 2 Peter. 2 Peter... Yeah, one Second Peter 1.16. Listen to this. This is Paul, uh, Peter writing, uh, who was a, obviously a close follower of Jesus. They, they were obsessed with this thing that, no, 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 you don't understand. It really happened. And Peter writes this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. Greek word there is mythoi, myths. We didn't follow cleverly invented myths or stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is like an obsession of the apostles. No, no, it really happened. We were there, we saw it. Trust us and trust the hundreds of other people who saw him. Uh, John writes this in 1 John. uh, 1 John 1, uh, verse 1. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Not Hey, man, I had a pretty interesting experience with Jesus inside one time. No, no, that's not what they were talking about. This is the real deal. This guy came back to life in the flesh for all to see. Oh, yeah. Uh, Jesus obviously was big on this. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. You know, you don't even need to turn there if you have a Bible. I, I have this thing memorized. I can, I can probably recite it. I could probably act it out in interpretive dance if need be. <laughs> I didn't bring my leotard, so (laughs) I'll do that next time. This is a remarkable story. This is probably my favorite Bible story. I love the rawness of it. I love the rawness of the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is funny in the Greek. You know, it's it's just kind of... It almost sounds like, um, I don't know, like a 6th or 7th grader is writing it. Because you could tell Mark's probably not super good at the Greek language. You know, it's kind of like, Jesus did this, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And and it just kind of strings all these things together. Uh, It's always always thought, even by skeptical scholars, to be one of the most authentic uh, gospels. You know, people who are skeptical about the Bible think that a good chunk of Mark is probably authentic. So... Here's this story written by Mark. And who is Mark? He's a traveling companion of Peter. And we know that the gospel of Mark is really not, you know, his gospel. It's the gospel of Peter. Mark was writing down things that Peter was saying. In fact, there's early church documents that say, oh yeah, the gospel of Mark is written by his hand, but it's really the teachings of Peter. And he made sure, Mark did, to get everything right. Although he didn't write them all in order, says this document. So Mark might be in different order than, say, Matthew or Luke, and certainly John. But nonetheless, it's it's raw and it's gritty, and it tells this story. Mark must have been very impressed by this. I'm sure he was probably hanging around. If not, he got the straight scoop from Peter, and Peter was very impressed by this. Jesus is in Capernaum, this town north of the Sea of Galilee, a little fishing village. And the, the text says that he's teaching in a home, you know. And uh, the, the, this is a big deal. I mean, think about it. This is an age when there are no sports stadiums. There's no Googleplexes. There's no video games. There's no cool auditoriums like this where they put on Bye Bye Birdie or anything. You know. Uh, so so when a when a spellbinding itinerant preacher comes to town, this is an A ticket. And the text says that the home in which Jesus was teaching was. Overflowing with people, people were literally lined up out in the streets, you know, just trying to lean in to hear what he was saying. So here's this, here's this crowded place with a bunch of people really anticipating something good. Jesus is going to speak, and I hear he's, I hear he's pretty good. In fact, I hear he can m- multiply loaves and fishes, so we might get lunch out of the deal, you know. So this is, this is just good no matter how you slice it. <clears throat> so Jesus is teaching in this overflowing place, and. Uh, there's four guys in town. I love these guys. There are guys, I'm sure, in this room, just like this, who they have a friend who's paralyzed. He can't use his leg. He's a paralytic, says in the text. And these guys, instead of rushing to get their own seats, they go, you know, to the paralytic. And they they rush off to get their friend, the paralytic, and they put him on some sort of mat or stretcher or something, and they trot him down to where Jesus is teaching and, of course, uh, man, the crowd beat him to it. They couldn't get near the place. The crowd was flowing out into the street. <laughs> These guys were undaunted by this. They take the paralytic, and somehow they get him on top of the house. Now, we're going to have to wait for the Mel Gibson movie to see how they did this. Um, you know, you, you wonder, did they, give him, did they have a couple of guys catching up top, a, guys, a couple of guys throwing on, at the bottom, you know, heave-ho or ropes? I don't know. But they get him on top of this house, and, uh, you know, they start to dig through. Now, back inside, you know, here's Jesus teaching. It's probably dimly lit, you know. People standing around the walls, blocking any kind of opening that might be a window or something. And so it's very dim in there, and he's teaching. I always picture him kind of standing in the middle of the room. And uh, people suddenly see dust falling, you know, from the roof. And more dust is falling. And suddenly... You know, a beam of light comes through. You know? And, of course, this is, has this total ethereal feeling because there's dust in the air and suddenly light's coming through. It's probably coming through right near Jesus. You know, it's probably got a whole religious thing going, you know. And uh, uh, the hole gets bigger. And people who got there early are going, Oh, man, what's going on here? This is, this is awesome. Uh, soon the hole gets big enough and a guy's head pops through. Looks around, comes back up. The hole gets bigger. Leaves are falling. Dust is falling on everybody. Uh, they, they think maybe there's a, you know, a Holy Land earthquake going on. Then, down is lowered this fellow on a mat. People are watching. Jesus is watching it going, what is this? You know. And it comes down. I always picture it coming like near the feet of Jesus. You know, and they're all watching. And, and then the crowd stands hushed. What's he going to do? And Jesus says something. Here's, here's what he says. He, he, uh, they didn't know what to make of this. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's probably how they reacted, you know? It's like, oh, oh, well, yeah, good, good for him. Good, yeah, that's, that's neat, you know? Maybe Jesus will make us lunch later. <laughs> now, why? Why weren't these people going, Yay and Amen, this man's sins have been forgiven? You know, and they're cheering. You know, maybe when Mel Gibson makes the movie, they'll do that. But but no, they're just going, Yeah, it's good. Actually, they're at the Texas, there are a couple of Jewish teachers of the law in the back of the room going, Hey, wait a minute. Actually, they're thinking this. Hey, wait a minute. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, well, they were on to something, but. It's kind of a little side story. So here's here's everybody, here's everybody going, yeah, that's neat. Now now think about it. Why weren't they? Why weren't they excited that Jesus says, "Son, your sins are forgiven"? There's a reason for it. Because if Jesus is truly forgiving their sins, it's an invisible spiritual act, right? It's an invisible spiritual act. You can't see it happening. So people go, okay. You know, I guess we do that, don't we, you know? Maybe he's all right with that. A couple of, couple of knowledgeable Jewish teachers go, wait, wait a minute, this isn't kosher at all. But nonetheless, people are wondering. Oh, let me give you an example of this. Say, um, say a side door bursts open, suddenly light streams into the room, and a guy, I'm not kidding, okay, this could happen in Bend. A guy walks in with long flowing robes and a staff, you know? And he's got a hat and maybe a big white beard. He looks like Gandalf the White, you know? And he, he comes in to the, to the room and, and maybe he's got disciples following him. He's got sandals, you know, and, and he stands up and he says, behold, you know, or maybe he says, "Lo," because these are religious, guy. maybe he really hits it out of the park and he says, lo and behold, you know, <laughs> and he says, my children, your sins, they are forgiven. you're thinking, good for us, you know? Hey, that's neat, that's, that's, you know, who is that guy? You know, yeah, lunch is coming up soon, you know. That's, see, why would we believe that he has any authority over that kind of thing? We can't see it happening. We can't see it happening. So people were a little bit perplexed. Here's the point of the whole thing. Jesus didn't want them to be without a witness that this is true, He really does have the authority to forgive sins. So what did he say? What did he do? He said, he saw the crowd. They weren't particularly excited. So he said to them, so that you will, and here's the operative word, know. So that you will know. So that you will know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Rise and walk. The guy gets up. He picks up his mat. You can imagine a crowd parting towards the door and he walks out maybe for the first time in his life and the the Greek text uses the strongest word possible. They were amazed. They were astonished. Jesus was big on demonstration. He really was. He was big on demonstration. He liked to demonstrate the truth of his teaching. He didn't do it at every turn but he thought it was a very, very important thing. In fact, when the skeptics of the day right? Uh, The Pharisees and the hypocritical teachers of the law would confront him. They'd say, show us a sign. And normally he'd say, I'm not going to show you rascals a sign. A perverse and radical generation like this doesn't doesn't deserve a sign. But I'll give you one, one sign, right? Tear down this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, right? The the sign was the, the resurrection, the coming back to life of his dead body. He said it on on a number of occasions. Once in John and in uh, Luke and Matthew, he talks about about, uh, the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the big fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. The implication is he will come out just as Jonah did. That was going to be the great sign. Jesus wanted us to know these things to be true. And guess what? You can demonstrate the resurrection to be true. It really happened. And there's solid evidence. In fact, yesterday I gave a lecture three times on this topic that the evidence is so good that you can take the evidence provided by the harshest critics of Christianity, people who wouldn't believe like us for a second. They actually believe certain things surrounding the resurrection events are true. When you gather up the facts they provide and you look at them and you apply various theories, there's only one theory that fits the fact. Jesus came back bodily from the dead. It's a stunning thing. God did not leave us without a witness. He did not leave us without a witness. I wish I had a chance to give you that presentation now. It's, uh, it really is an encouraging thing. Maybe maybe another time. But I did give that presentation on a couple of occasions. One was at the UCLA School of Medicine. This was, uh, this was great fun. I get this call at Biola and some medical students. They're having a special lecture series, and it's getting near Easter time, and they want to invite some, you know, whacked out fundamentalists to talk about, you know, resurrection. So they, they call me at Biola, you know, go, go figure. So I say, oh, that sounds like a blast. So I go there and, and I'm lecturing in anatomy lecture hall. It's about this size, except it goes straight up in the air. You actually look up to talk to people because that way they can sit in chairs and stare down at the slab from which you lecture, you know, where moments before they were just dissecting something really grisly, you know, to, to show the medical students, and so uh, the, the hall fills up, and I was wondering why so many people were there. I mean, the, almost the entire freshman and sophomore medical uh, class was there, and I guess some of the some some bright students had bought some big boxes of sandwiches. So it's like you know, feed the medical student and let let them listen to the fundamentalist. You know, <clears throat> worked out pretty well. So here they are there. They're, uh, they're sitting, enjoying their lunch, and they, I was kind of the lunchtime entertainment. And I made, a, I made a very dispassionate presentation, really. You know, normally I'll throw in a joke and make some rhetorical flourishes. But in this case, I knew these were thoughtful medical students, and they want just the facts, ma'am. Thank you very much, and all that stuff. So I said, here's my basic outline of the argument, all right? Uh, Jesus was alive at point A. He was dead at point B, and he was alive again at point C thus says the historical record deal with it now it made a lot of sense to me to give a presentation like that to some young medical students if if dead people can come back to life i think medical students ought to know something about that <laughs> <clears throat> so i give them this abc presentation they're stunned i'm stunned that they're stunned i don't know why they're stunned in fact uh, they're so stunned i could tell what kind of sandwich they were eating because their their jaws were hanging open you know <laughs> I, I really i was kind of buffaloed as to why they were stunned afterwards you know a group of them came up and started uh talking to me and this one i think this one baptist guy summarized summarized he goes you know i went to a baptist church all my life and you know i memorized the bible verses and did the whole sunday school thing and all that and and it was great really but but your, your presentation sounds much different. You're making it sound like it's, it's um, true, true. <laughs> like, like it's true, true. What, what, was he, what was he getting at? He was saying, you're making it sound like it's not some truth in a religious sphere that you know religiously. You're making it sound like we can know this for real. Like, if I use the powers of investigation I've learned through college and in medical school, I could actually look into this and discover it to be real. I said, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Son, your sins are forgiven. Rise and walk. You know, I'll only give one sign to this generation. Tear down this temple and I will raise it up again. This really happened. It's not just some sort of weird religious experience that we've had. This is the real deal. And really, it's the only hope for humankind on the planet. They've got to be reconciled with the Father. Jesus wanted to make sure we didn't miss this. So he did something really remarkable in our midst. Uh, wow. One more quick story. I don't have time to get into a whole resurrection defense, but uh, just, a, just an illustration of how strong the evidence is. Um, I go over, go over to a relative's house near, uh, near uh, Christmas time, you know, and, uh, this relative, I'd name, I should just call him Alan because you have those relatives where you, there's been so many marriages and switching around that you can't really identify the relative you're sitting next to. That was the case. You know, I'll call him Alan. So I go into Alan. Alan's a retired guy. He golfs and watches television. Those are his two activities. And whenever I watch, and he's an armchair skeptic. He loves to watch, you know, uh, the Discovery Channel or anything that that that, uh, that might play some programming that kind of rubs Christians the wrong way. And so I walk into the room. Anytime I walk into the room, he sees me coming. He grabs the remote. He's very good at that, you know. He, he grabs the remote and he starts going, doo, 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 doo. and he lands always on the most outrageous religious programming that he can possibly find, right? You know, people with gigantic hair, people with <laughs> people with blazing white Nehru jackets, people frothing and falling and all that you know. And, and, and he goes, and, he, and I walk into the room and he goes, hey, here's your people, you know. <laughs> oh. So this one time I walk into the room and it's near Christmas time and he grabs the remote and says, doof, doof, doof. and actually he, he stopped on a documentary about the historical Jesus. Now it's Christmas time, but you know, <laughs> Uh, the History Channel or whatever, they don't know the difference, you know. Christmas, Easter, you know. They should be showing some nativity narrative, but they're showing the historical Jesus. And and it was very nice, and and we both got into it immediately. They were showing, like, 3D models of ancient Jerusalem and and what Jesus might have looked like based on the cranial features of ancient Semitic men and stuff. It was really interesting, so we were both kind of caught up in it. And if they're doing a, a biography on a historical figure, you know, those go, you know, they, they have a title sequence, you know, and, and in this case, they, they say, you know, the crucifixion, Whew, you know, and then they interview scholars sitting in front of bookshelves or out in the quad, you know, <laughs> and it was fascinating because on uh, the crucifixion of Jesus, they were interviewing these scholars, most of whom I knew, I knew, they actually threw in a couple of conservatives too, which was, which was nice of them. Uh, but to a person, whether conservative or ultra-liberal, radical, skeptical, every scholar they interviewed said, yes, indeed, Jesus was a real historical figure, and he was killed by a Roman crucifixion team. Take it to the bank, knowable history. Well, if they're doing a biography of Jesus, you know what the next title sequence is going to be. The resurrection, you know? And then they interviewed the exact same group of scholars in, uh, that they did on the crucifixion. And except for the couple of conservatives who thought there was some merit in the resurrection, almost every one of the rest of them said something like, well, who can possibly know what happened in those tumultuous times so very, very long ago? That was the sound of my head hitting the coffee table. (laughs) I was both doing that and hollering at the television at the same time, saying, they can't do that! The exact same body of evidence that told them that Jesus was certainly crucified by a Roman execution team one page over, says that he came back bodily from the dead. What's the problem here? It's not about the evidence. It's about their worldview. They simply are not open to the idea that God could intervene and perform a miracle of that magnitude. So, that hurts. (laughs) Jesus was into demonstration. He provided a tremendous trail of evidence back through history uh, showing us this. That actually ends Sermon Part 1. Now we go to Sermon Part 2. Sermon Part 2 that I'm moving into right now actually is related to Sermon Part 1. Let me see. I actually wrote a little transition. Here's how it goes. Jesus is big on demonstration, and he wants to demonstrate the truth of the gospel in our lives. That's the transition. Now, why am I, do, why am I doing Sermon B because I got to know a few of you <laughs> this weekend, and I got to know a little bit about what's going on in this church, and I think you people are on to something huge. And I want to give you some personal encouragement along those lines, because I think you could, oh, I just, I just don't know if you know what kind of future y'all have here in terms of uh, uh, forwarding the gospel and living for something big, 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 big. So I'm shifting gears a little bit, but this is about demonstration as it flows through your life. If you have a Bible, you might want to take a look at uh, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. I love this passage. This is really cool stuff. John chapter 15, starting with verse 5. I remember reading these passages many times, and they really didn't uh, have much impact on me. Then one time I was reading them, and it just struck me what was really going on here. John chapter 15, starting with verse 5, Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and burned. A branch that, that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. I remember in the past reading that going, la 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 la. Very nice. What's next? You know. One time it just struck me how big this is. Ask for anything, and you shall have it. Ask for anything. This is this is too good to be the true. I've got to read this again. Verse, I'll start with verse seven. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. You don't really believe that. You don't. I I know you don't. There's lots of reasons we don't believe this. Lots of reasons. This is one of those passages that dies the death of a thousand qualifications, you know? We can qualify this till the cows come home, home, you know. Uh, Well, that was really for those people way back then in Jesus' time. You had to be like within spitting distance of Jesus to see something like that happen. Or you had to be, you know, within within at least 50 years of the time of his life to see that kind of activity going on. There's no time qualifications in here. There are some conditionals, but I think we can work with those. But this is a big deal. If you remain in me, my word remains in you. Ask for anything, and you shall have it. I know that there are qualifications going through your mind right now. But what about, you know, and this thing, and one time this happened, and... No, no, just just listen to the raw words of Jesus himself. If you remain in me, and my word remains in you, ask for anything, and you shall have it. Well, certainly there is a conditional. There's an if-then, right? If you remain in me, and if my word remains in you, ask for anything, and you shall have it. So you you have to remain in him, and his word has to remain in you. Now, I don't know the heart of everybody in this room, but I can, I can pretty much guess that a, a group that would get up early on a Sunday morning, come to a place like this and, and worship uh, the risen Christ and the living God. And you're probably reading the Bible and seeking God on a regular basis. And one of your greatest desires, although you trip on sin all the time, is to, is to serve him and live for him. It seems to me that if that, if that sort of characterizes your life, you fit the conditional. If you remain in me, and my word remains in you, you probably get good Bible teaching. Maybe you listen to Christian teachers on the radio, and you you read Christian books, and you're you're imbibing deeply at the word of God. If his word remains in you, I think you fit the conditional. You can ask for anything, and you shall have it, right? Now, maybe, maybe there's some other issues in your mind. Well, Hazen, we got to be careful with that now because I do watch some of that crazy Christian television, and and those people, those people abuse this, right? They they abuse this. They name it and claim it and all that stuff, and that's that's whoa, you know, you know there are there is a lot of abuse of this. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but I'm not going to let somebody else's abuse rob me of a promise like this. For goodness' sake, this is astonishing. I want to make sure. I have full access to this great promise. So I'm not going to let the folks on television give me a bad time about it. If they abuse it, we'll have to deal with that on its own, but I want to make sure I have full access to this. There's another issue that, that might really be the biggest problem when you hear something like this where you go, oh, I don't you know, I, that, that drives you to try to qualify this out of existence. And that is we are immersed in naturalism. We're immersed in naturalism. What do I mean by that? It means it's just part of our culture to think that supernatural events just don't happen. Because maybe I haven't seen one. Or if I have seen one, it seems a little skittish or not particularly solid, you know. We live in in an age where there's great doubt about supernatural activity. We're immersed in naturalism, yet we read the New Testament. It's just filled with supernatural wonders, and we scratch our head. Why doesn't this happen? You know? I mean, we could talk about those kinds of issues. Uh, it's funny, because some of my friends on the mission field, uh, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of supernatural activity happening. In fact, they don't doubt these things at all. I usually find that people who are most open to the supernatural are people who are presenting the gospel in new areas, you know, for the first time. It seems that signs and wonders seem to follow along with them in in dramatic fashion. A friend of mine, he actually studied Christian apologetics in the master's degree program at Biola University. Uh, His name was uh, Kojo. Kojo was a native of Ghana. He sacrificed everything to get to the United States. He drove a cab through his whole degree program. He earns the degree, and rather than staying in the United States, which he probably could have found a way to do and work, he goes back to his native land to, uh, pre- to, to preach the gospel and defend the faith. You know, awesome. So he came back for a visit not long ago, and uh, Kojo was telling me these amazing stories. This one story said he's preaching to a big audience, and a woman comes in, you know, just just in zombie-like, fashion, holding a limp child. The child was dead as a doornail. She lays the child on the on the stage and it doesn't say a word. Kojo knew what the deal was. And so he has everybody stand and pray and the child comes back to life. And he goes, it was such a natural, supernatural thing, you know? I mean, there weren't any bells and whistles. There weren't like angels flying around, just I didn't feel any heat or anything. This girl just comes back to life, you know, astonishing. And I go, Kojo, and he told me other things, you know, it's mind boggling. I said, Kojo, tell me, why do you think we don't see much of that in like North America? He goes, oh, that's easy. Well, tell me. (laughs) He goes, oh, I can't believe you don't know this. It's easy. It's, you have (laughs) 911, right? When you have an emergency, you dial 911. You don't, your first recourse is not to pray. Your first recourse is not to call on the God of heaven who has all power to uh, you know, raise dead bodies and heal the sick and, and give sight to the blind and so on. You folks uh, dial 911. Good for you. Glad you have that. We don't have 911 in Ghana. Somebody has a torn liver or a broken leg or a smashed cranium, we pray for them. And you know what? Not all of them get healed or rise up. But boy, it happens a lot more to us than it does to you. You know why? Because we ask a lot more. You know, you have not because you ask not. We are kind of immersed in naturalism. We don't really expect the supernatural power of God to flow through and and really work. We We don't expect a tremendous promise like this to really come through. Now, there's another important qualification. And this is a legitimate qualification. It's about the context of the passage. This is not a passage about ask for whatever you want. All right? It isn't. Let's say you're a Mary Kay salesperson, you know, and you want the pink Cadillac. This is not about, you know, I want the pink Cadillac, you know, with a nice, you know, color-associated bow in my driveway when I get home this afternoon. It's not about that. There is an important context that needs to be taken into consideration. This passage is about fruit-bearing. It's about kingdom work. It's about moving God's work forward. That's what it's about. I am the vine, says Jesus. You are the branches. The vine is firmly planted in the ground. It's like the big stalk of the bush, right? It's got got roots that go down deep and draw up water and nutrients. That's Jesus. And then he sends the nutrients through the branches. That's us. We We are totally dependent on him for everything as it comes through. He is the vine. We are the branches. And interestingly, we as the branches get to bear the fruit. I don't understand this amazing opportunity we have, but we get to bear his kingdom fruit. Ultimately, it's his fruit, and we have to recognize that. But really, this passage is about fruit bearing. Whose fruit are we bearing? His fruit. Therefore, if you are about his work, if you want to bear his fruit, if you want to serve him and his kingdom, And there are many ways to do that. You could lead worship. What a wonderful worship team you have, by the way. You could work in the nursery. You could be out doing street evangelism. You could be bringing meals to shut-ins. You could be evangelizing. There are so many ways to serve God. I bet you if we interviewed people, you have invented new ways to serve God. If that is your purpose, moving his purposes forward, serving his kingdom— uh, moving everything towards his glory, you can take this to the bank. You ask for anything and you will have it according to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For a body this size, you need to take advantage of that and watch what happens. I could just sense the, the fervor and the passion for the Lord here. And I think you folks have some big vision. And this is going to be one of the keys to seeing that, realized. trusting Jesus. Listen to this final verse in this passage one more time. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. It is as if he's standing outside the door this morning with a giant basket of goodies. A whole basket full of gifts and things you need to be dramatically successful in ministering and giving him glory and pushing his kingdom forward. He's giddy with excitement to give you just what you need to serve him. Our Heavenly Father, our great King, what a joy this is. What a joy it is to know that you love us so much. You want us to participate deeply in you, your work. You want to mold us into the image of your Son, and give us every tool to make it happen. Lord Jesus, I pray for great faith among my brothers and sisters here that they would trust you and ask for huge things. Not, not just small things, but huge things. I pray they'd ask for everything. In fact, Lord, I pray right now, uh, maybe in agreement with my brothers and sisters here, that, that in our lifetime, we would see one of the greatest revivals since your day. That there would be a global revival revival of unprecedented proportions. And I pray that this fellowship in Bend, Oregon would be one of the center points of the great revival. Lord, I pray that your rays of light would stream from here. That This would be a beacon on a hill that people talk about all over the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much.